Geographical Bites from Bala, number 10. Herman Haupt, Lincoln's Railroad Man. Welcome to the 10th episode of Biographical Bites from Bala, Stories from Laurel Hill West, which is an active and historic cemetery in Bala Kinwood, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1869 across the river from its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill East in Philadelphia. It's more than twice as big as Laurel Hill East. It has a totally different feel and a strikingly different population. It is open every day of the year for you to explore. 365 days a year, now in the summer months from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. There's plenty of parking at the business office just off Belmont Avenue or at the Bell Tower. If you enter on Belmont, just follow the road with the white line in the middle. Another possibility is just duck in while you're walking the Kinwood Trail. Your best bet for public transportation is probably to take a bus to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue and then cross the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge and come in via the Writer's Ferry entrance across from the Pet Cemetery. Our 10th episode of Biographical Bites from Bala is for mid-July 2022. It is about a master railroad engineer of the 19th century. Herman Haupt was born in Philadelphia and became one of the top railroad men in the country. During the Civil War, his mastery of the rails provided the Union Army with thousands of tons of supplies, probably saved thousands of lives, and may have preserved the Union's victory at Gettysburg. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, and I will be telling you the story of Herman Haupt today in Biographical Bites from Bala. If you are like me and have only standard knowledge of the American Civil War, you may think that any railroad action in that four-year conflict was limited to the great railroad chase that was memorialized by Buster Keaton in the 1926 silent film, The General. Or maybe you remember Walt Disney's recreation of the event in the 1956 movie, The Great Railroad Chase. It starred Fess Parker and Jeffrey Hunter. Think about your favorite Civil War movie. Gettysburg, no trains. Glory, no trains. Gone with the wind, well, there is that astonishing, heartbreaking scene at the rail yard when Scarlet is walking over and around what seems like thousands of wounded, pleading soldiers. But there's no train in sight on those tracks. Yet historians today recognize the American Civil War as the first major conflict fought by train, a railroad war, if you will. Trains were a vital asset in the movement of troops and materiel. Previous conflicts like the Revolutionary War had been fought in or near populous areas to take advantage of local resources. Armies moved constantly so as not to exhaust one area's supply. With railroads available, the majority of battles in the Civil War were fought outside populated areas, and every major battle east of the Mississippi River took place within 20 miles of a railroad line. 
Railroads provided fresh supplies of men, arms, equipment, food, horses, and medical supplies to the battle. And then they transported injured men back to field hospitals for definitive care. Armies were no longer dependent on the natural resources available in disputed territories. For a long time, men had known about the force created by expansion of heated water into steam. It was the late 18th century that James Watts developed a method to convert the oscillating motion of steam engines into a rotary motion to move wheels. And boilers could now be built to withstand the pressures required by steam engines. Steamboats freed transportation from the vagaries of the wind or the canals which required horse and mule power. When these same principles were applied to railroad engines starting in the 1820s, another technological revolution took place. To help control the new traffic, the newly invented telegraph followed expanding railroads and increased communication to formerly isolated areas. Transportation times were cut by as much as 90%. In 1832, four years before Laurel Hill Cemetery was founded, Philadelphia jeweler and machinist Matthias Baldwin constructed his first steam locomotive, Old Ironsides. It would bring passengers to and from Ninth and Green to the suburb of Germantown. In 1847, the Pennsylvania Railroad started its first main line from Harrisburg to Pittsburgh. Railroads were commercially practicable by the 1850s, and there was an explosion in their growth. At the start of the Civil War, the three countries with the most rails were the United States, the Union, with 20,500 miles of railroad tracks, Great Britain, with 10,000 miles, And in third place was the Confederate States of America, with 9,500 miles. Most of these railroads were designed to bring products from the fields to markets and ports in the city, so most lines were less than 50 miles. Union railroads actually formed a patchwork network, but there was no uniform measurement of the distance between the two parallel rails of the track. In the north, there were 13 different track gauges among the various railroads. At the start of the war, five different railroads served Richmond. None of them were connected. To go from one line to another, passengers and freight had to be transported across town to another line. Compared to the Union, the Confederacy had one-third of the freight cars, one-fifth of the locomotives, one-eighth of rail production, one-tenth of the telegraph stations, and one-twenty-fourth of the locomotive production. But neither side was prepared for a war that would require the long-distance transportation of large numbers of men and supplies. Four days after the attack at Fort Sumter, Confederate Captain John Daniel Imboden received permission to take Harper's Ferry, Virginia, and its arsenal. It was then placed under the command of Colonel Thomas J. Jackson. His nickname Stonewall would not come into existence until a few months later at the First Battle of Manassas. Jackson was given orders to destroy the railroad and its equipment, 56 locomotives and 300 rail cars. 
Rather than obliterate everything, Jackson ordered 13 locomotives to be taken 48 miles overland by 40-horse teams to Strasburg, Virginia, the nearest Confederate rail terminal. The Union Army's operation of railroads under the Quartermaster Corps was disorganized and chaotic. At one point, a million pounds of meat could not be moved in a timely manner, so it was destroyed to keep it from falling into enemy hands. Secretary of War Simon Cameron was clearly incompetent, not to mention corrupt. Lincoln finally placed him with fellow Illinoisan and president of the Illinois Central Railroad, Edwin Stanton, on 20 January 1862. Eleven days later, Congress passed a bill that authorized President Lincoln, as Commander-in-Chief, to take possession of any and all railroads and telegraph lines in the United States. The Confederacy, honoring its pledges for states' rights, refused to centralize railroads under a national government, and they continued to function in utter confusion. Now that Lincoln had control of the railroad equipment, he had to organize it. Thomas A. Scott, first vice president of the Pennsylvania Railroad, had been tapped by fellow Pennsylvanian Simon Cameron to be assistant secretary of war. But Scott was smart enough to realize that his success with the Pennsylvania Railroad was primarily due to his chief engineer, a Philadelphian named Herman Haupt, H-A-U-P-T. He was not an immigrant. Sebastian Haupt had immigrated from Germany in 1738 and landed in Philadelphia where he settled. By 1750, Sebastian owned 125 acres in Philadelphia County. In 1764, he purchased a grist mill and 108 acres in Upper Dublin. Herman's father, John Jacob Haupt, learned the skill of bookkeeping and he was in that job in a dry goods score when Herman was born in March 1817. Herman Haupt got the best engineering training available in the United States when he attended the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Another Philadelphian, George Gordon Meade, was a contemporary in the class of 1835. They had very similar personalities, brilliant but prickly. Haupt came within one demerit of being expelled before he got his act together and graduated at age 18. He was in the middle of the class. He and Meade were commissioned as second lieutenants, but Haupt quickly earned a reputation of not getting along with his superiors. He lasted about three months before he resigned his commission. Haupt took a job as a surveyor for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. After helping to develop the Gettysburg Railroad and the York and Wrightsville Railroad, he became a professor of mathematics and civil engineering at Pennsylvania College in Gettysburg, where he purchased a house. He joined the Pennsylvania Railroad in 1848, and that's where he met Thomas A. Scott. Haupt worked his way up to chief engineer in 1853. But in 1856, he left the PRR to become chief engineer of the Troy and Greenfield Railroad and the Hoosack Tunnel Project in Massachusetts. They were to build a five-mile-long tunnel through the Berkshire Mountains in northwestern Massachusetts. 
To help speed up the job, he invented a pneumatic drill. But because of intense squabbles with other railroad speculators and Massachusetts Governor Andrews, work came to a halt. So when war broke out, Haupt applied for the position of Assistant Secretary of War. He did not get the position, but his old partner, Scott, did. On Scott's suggestion, Stanton called Haupt to Washington and asked him to spend three or four weeks looking at railroad operations. After he read Haupt's reports, Stanton commissioned him as a colonel and appointed him Chief of Construction and Transportation in the Army of the Rappahannock under General Irwin McDowell. Although Haupt was to report to Daniel McCallum, Superintendent of the United States Military Railroads, his orders made him independent of all authority except that of Stanton. Haupt insisted that he would not wear a uniform and he would accept no compensation beyond his expenses. He first impressed Abraham Lincoln when he built the Potomac Creek Bridge in nine days. His construction crew consisted of 120 soldiers with no experience in building railways, many of whom were petrified of climbing the high trestles. After nine days, they pulled a test train across the bridge with ropes, and it held. Lincoln and several cabinet members came to see the work, and they were awestruck. Lincoln later told his war committee, that man Haupt has built a bridge across the Potomac Creek about 400 feet long and about 100 feet high over which loaded trains are running every hour and upon my word gentlemen there's nothing in it but bean poles and corn stalks. Lincoln is not exaggerating. Google military railroad bridge over Potomac Creek and be amazed at what this contraption looks like. It really does look like bean poles and corn stalks. Haupt became frustrated almost immediately as various generals tried to control train operations. General John Pope had succeeded McDowell as commander of the Army of the Rappahannock. He did not believe in the value of railroads and he wanted to make Haupt subordinate to his army's quartermaster department. This was too much for Haupt. Six weeks after accepting his position, he resigned and he went back to Massachusetts. Soon, Assistant Secretary of War Peter Watson telegraphed Haupt, Come back immediately. Cannot get along without you. Not a wheel turning on any of the railroads. He came back, but once again he butted heads with Pope and one of his brigade commanders, General Samuel Sturgis. They would stop trains and try to commandeer them to their special units. Haupt blamed them for delays that kept 10,000 Union troops off the field at the Second Battle of Bull Run in August 1862. After the fiasco with Pope, Haupt refused to continue in any role unless he had full command of the railroad. And on 24 August 1862, he got orders from Chief of Staff Henry Halleck that stated, quote, the railroad is entirely under your control. No military officer has any right to interfere." End quote. 
Less than two weeks later, Haupt was promoted to Brigadier General of Volunteers. And again, he did not formally accept his commission. And again, he would accept no pay beyond his expenses. He was placed in charge of military railroads, but not given the title Commander of the U.S. Military Railroads. His new title was, quote, Chief of Construction and Transportation in the War Department, end quote. He was now the Tsar of all railroads controlled by the Union Army. Yet, through late 1862 and early 1863, Haupt had time to occasionally visit Massachusetts to pursue his litigation against the state of Massachusetts for the projects there. In June 1863, General Robert E. Lee had two objectives before launching his assault on Washington, D.C. The Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, the B&O, ran west from Baltimore through Cumberland, Maryland, crossing the Ohio River at Wheeling and Parkersburg, which were now in West Virginia, which had been admitted to the Union on June 20th. This he was able to do. His other goal was grander, destroy the Cumberland Valley Railroad from Hagerstown, Maryland to Harrisburg and the North Central Railway near York and most importantly, destroy the Pennsylvania Railroad main line and its bridge across the Susquehanna River at Harrisburg. If he succeeded, the large East Coast cities of Washington, Baltimore, Wilmington, Delaware, and Philadelphia would be isolated from trunk line railroads that brought agricultural and manufactured goods from the West. After his troops wrecked the B&O, Lee was moving up to the Cumberland Valley Railroad when scouts reported sighting the Union Army moving north on the east side of South Mountain under its new commander, General George Meade, who had taken over from Hooker on June 28th. General Richard Ewell's forces had moved ahead of the main body and disrupted railroad operations on the Gettysburg Railroad east of Gettysburg and on the Northern Central Railroad near York. As word reached Washington about this impending clash of forces, Haupt's authority was expanded on Saturday, 27 June, to cover all commercial railroads in Virginia, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. Haupt was, of course, intimately familiar with the territory. He still had a house in Gettysburg. Uh, Confederate General James Longstreet actually set one of his batteries in Haupt's front yard residence on Seminary Ridge. Now, for unknown reasons, Haupt was delayed by Stanton for three days before he left Washington for Harrisburg on Tuesday, June 30th, to gather information for his old classmate, General George Meade. He found that the North Central Line was unusable. He had to travel to Harrisburg via Philadelphia and Reading. After he confirmed that the Pennsylvania Railroad had been protected, he sent a telegraph to General Halleck to inform him of Lee's movements. He said that he believed Lee was concentrating his troops at Gettysburg. He requested that a courier be dispatched to Meade with that information. July 1st was a busy day for the Union Army, but it was a very busy day for Herman Haupt. First, he went to Westminster, Maryland, 20 miles southeast of Gettysburg, to investigate the feasibility of using the Western Maryland Railroad that ran 29 miles there from 
Baltimore. It was a single track railroad. No passing sightings, no yard tracks in Westminster for the trains to turn around. Only one train at a time was permitted on the line and one or sometimes two round trips were operated on any given day with a five-car train being normal size. Haupt went back to Baltimore and got to work that afternoon. He used his authority as head of the U.S. military railroads to commandeer locomotives, freight cars, passenger cars, baggage cars, and crews from any railroad that was serving Baltimore. He then directed that five or six ten-car trains would leave Baltimore in convoy and run one immediately behind the other to Westminster. He instructed Meade's quartermasters to have troops available at Westminster to simultaneously unload all five or six trains. When the trains were unloaded, they backed down the line back to Baltimore. Once there in the yard, another set of trains that had been loaded would head to Westminster. He ran three round trips daily, meaning the line capacity had been increased from at maximum two trains and 10 cars per day to 15 or 18 trains and 150 to 180 cars per day. And since the telegraph line had been destroyed, Haupt also set up a Pony Express service to provide communication among Baltimore, Westminster, and Meade's headquarters at Gettysburg. Also on July 1st, Haupt ordered General Adna Anderson to move his 400-man railroad construction corps which consisted mostly of formerly enslaved people from Alexandria, Virginia to Baltimore immediately to stabilize the track on the Western Maryland Railroad and Gettysburg Railroads. So trains could run directly to Gettysburg. Both projects had been completed by July 4th, the day after the battle ended. By Friday, the third day of fighting at Gettysburg, the Western Maryland had moved 1,500 tons of cargo to Westminster, and returning trains brought more than 2,000 wounded soldiers to hospitals in Baltimore. Haupt had saved an uncountable number of lives. Real historian George Edgar Turner later wrote, It is farther from Baltimore to Gettysburg than from Richmond to Fredericksburg. Yet in four days during the heat of desperate battle, Haupt accomplished for Meade what the Confederate organization could not do for Lee in four months of quiet. On Sunday, July 5th, Haupt met with Meade. He asked about his movement plans so he could make arrangements for supplies. Meade said he had no immediate plans. His men required rest. Haupt argued vehemently with his old friend that he was missing an opportunity to cut off Lee's retreat. But Meade could not be budged. Haupt immediately requisitioned a locomotive to take him back to Washington. And on Monday, July 6th, Haupt met separately with General Halleck, Secretary Stanton, 
and President Lincoln to urge them to order Meade to pursue Lee. He was certain that Lee could be intercepted either as he retreated down the Cumberland Valley or by forwarding Union troops by rail from Alexandria to Front Royal, Virginia to stop Lee in the Shenandoah Valley after he crossed the Potomac River. This would finish up the war. The next day, Halleck ordered Meade to pursue and stop Lee before he reached the Potomac. Meade did not do so. Haupt still had to contend with political bickering. Secretary Stanton issued an order to Haupt on 1 September 1863, stating that his commission would be vacated in five days if he did not accept it. Haupt's counterproposal was to serve as a civilian appointment as, quote, Chief of the Bureau of Military Railroads, end quote. Stanton rejected the proposal. Haupt was relieved of duty on the 14th of September. At age 46, and after 16 months of distinguished service with the Union Army, Herman Haupt left Washington and moved back to Massachusetts. But in November, when President Lincoln traveled by train to Gettysburg for the dedication of the National Cemetery, he rode the Baltimore and Ohio from Washington to Baltimore, the restored Northern Central Railway from Baltimore to Hanover Junction, and the restored Gettysburg Railroad from Hanover Junction to Gettysburg. Haupt was succeeded by his old nemesis and subordinate, Colonel Daniel C. McCallum, who served in this role until the end of the war. At the end of the Civil War, when McCallum wrote his final report of the U.S. military railroads, he did not even mention Haupt once. Haupt went on to continue his successful career in railroading and engineering. He was the first person to prove the practicability of transporting oil over distance in pipes. And in Pennsylvania, he built the Tidewater Pipeline, the nation's first extensive oil pipeline, and he made a great deal of money. He also served as general manager of several other railroads. And in 1884, he was elected president of the Dakota and Great Southern Railroad. By 1904, at age 87, Herman Haupt was the oldest living graduate of West Point. That year, he wrote to his son, I saved the day at Gettysburg and saved the country, for defeat would have been sure. I was the only one who interpreted correctly the design of Lee's movements. My telegraph gave me the only information he received. He did not, at the time, know either the position of his own corps or those of the enemy. If Meade had moved and taken possession with a small part of his force and a few batteries on the south side of the river, escape would have been hopeless. Lee would have surrendered. The war would have been over. And Meade would have been President of the United States. But there was nothing in him. He was a weak character and not equal to the occasion. The public worshipped Meade as a hero and erected monuments to his memory. Tribute is often paid to the most unworthy, as in the case of McClellan, who was the worst of many failures. I have been inevitably into a scrap of lost history. But I do feel somewhat proud of my war record in which I can discover no mistakes. But on the contrary, much of inestimable value to the country, but never recognized or appreciated, 
on the contrary treated with ingratitude by Stanton to please Governor Andrew, who was at the time a political person and my bitter enemy. Herman Haupt died on 14 December 1905. He was 88 years old. Somewhat appropriately, he died of a heart attack while he was riding a train with his son from New York to Philadelphia. Four days later, he was interred in the Norriton section, lot 230 at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Now, after battling with Meade, Stanton, and Governor Andrews and others, Haupt's final indignity was posthumous. In 1913, the Adjutant General of the Army concluded that because Herman Haupt had never formally accepted his commission as Colonel or as Brigadier General, and that the ranks were nominal only for enforcing decisions, he never was legally a member of the military establishment of the United States. Technically, he was not in the GAR, the Grand Army of the Republic, and therefore he did not earn the GAR grave marker that stands in front of his modest monument. If you did not notice, we have rebranded. We are now Laurel Hill East Cemetery in Philadelphia and Laurel Hill West Cemetery in Balakinwood. Imagine changing the name of something after 180 years. That's amazing. The Friends Organization is now once again just Friends of Laurel Hill. We still offer the same benefits to members, discounts on tours at both cemeteries and in the gift shop, members-only tours, two annual members-only podcasts. Membership in the Friends would be a terrific gift for either you or for friends or relatives who share your love for Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West. I had planned to do this podcast on both Herman Haupt and his son, Louis Haupt, another accomplished engineer. But Herman's study, as you heard, was pretty long, and I discovered Louis was involved in planning for the Panama Canal, along with at least one other Philadelphian. So I think... I'm going to do a Panama Canal connection in a future podcast. Remember that the next edition of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories will be available on the last Friday of... It features even more of the incredible Drinker family. You've already heard me talk about Cecilia Bow and Amy Ernesta Drinker Bullet Bow Barlow. Now you can hear about Amy's siblings, Henry, the musicologist who supported the Trapp family when they came to this country, his wife, a pioneer in music studies, women's music studies, Philip, inventor of the Iron Lung, Catherine Drinker Bowen, an award-winning biographer, and Cecil Drinker, founder of the Harvard University School of Public Health. It'll be quite an adventure. Now, next episode, Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West, episode number 11, will be in mid-August. And I will tell you of Henrietta Cousins, who, with a group of forward-looking women artists, Violet Oakley, Jesse Wilcox-Smith, and Elizabeth Shippen-Green, lived in a commune called the Red Rose Girls. Their love and trust for each other will sound familiar more than a hundred years after they flourished. So what's coming up for tours? Well, for the rest of July, 
There are two hot spots introductory walking tours at Laurel Hill East. Thursday the 21st from 11.30 a.m. till 1.30 p.m. and Friday the 29th from 10 a.m. till noon. Rich Wilhelm's highly recommended tour of musical connections, it's called Heavenly Intonations, will be Saturday the 23rd from 1 until 3 p.m. That one I strongly recommend. There's a walk through Laurel Hill East with our arborist on Friday the 22nd from 6 to 8 p.m. You can learn about the shade trees of summer. Laurel Hill West has a general tour on Saturday the 23rd from 10 a.m. to 11.30. For August, we've got our annual car and hearse show at Laurel Hill East. That'll be Sunday, August 7th, from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. But for a real treat, set aside the evening of Friday the 12th, when Laurel Hill East introduces our full moon history tours starting at 7.30 p.m. Bring a flashlight. There are two hotspots introductory tours at Laurel Hill East on Saturday, August 13th from 10 till noon and on Thursday the 18th also from 10 until noon. There's one that I'm really looking forward to. It's called Call in the Cavalry, First City Troop. We are going to meet at the 23rd Street Armory at 10 o'clock on Saturday, August 20th. And after doing a tour of the Armory, uh, by their historian, we're coming to Laurel Hill East and pick up some more city troop connections. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. Check the website for details on that. Of course, if you want self-guided tours, they're available for both cemeteries. For Laurel Hill East, you can download the app. For Laurel Hill West, you can find it with your podcast. It's a walkthrough from the Kinwood Trail entrance to the Pencoid exit. Tickets for all of these events are available from our website, thelaurelhillcemetery.org slash events. That may not be the website when you're listening to this, but I think if you type that in, it will still take you to the new website. I don't know what the new URL is, if there is going to be a new URL. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer tour guide, and volunteer podcaster for both cemeteries. Maybe I will see you on a tour. Stay safe. Stay well. The bibliography is up next. Okay, bibliography. Um, One really nice online article I found is called A Railroad War by George A. McLean, Jr. When I first looked at it, I thought it said McClellan. No, it's McLean. Um, the Earl is EssentialCivilWarCurriculum.com slash A Railroad War. Check it out. It's a nice article. Um, I've got the beginnings of someone's dissertation called That Man Haupt, a biography of Herman Haupt. James Arthur Ward III was the author. Louisiana State University of Mechanical No, Louisiana State University and Mechanical College. It's a 1969 dissertation. Another online article, How the Railroad Won the War from the Smithsonian American Art Museum of all things. That is an unsigned article. I don't know who the author is on that. Now we get into the heavy stuff. PRR, Battle for the Presidency, 
Author Albert J. Chirella, Source Railroad History, Fall Winter 2012, number 207, pages 8 through 23. Also, Herman Haupt and the Development of the Pennsylvania Railroad. Author James A. Ward, the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography, January 1971, volume 95, number 1, pages 73 to 97. But the real gem for me was Railroads, Herman Haupt, and the Battle of Gettysburg by Stephen R. Dittmeyer, D-I-T-M-E-Y-E-R. I actually spoke to Mr. Dittmeyer on the phone to make sure that he was happy or he was okay with me quoting so much out of his article because it's such a good article. It's from Railroad History, Spring-Summer 2013, number 208, pages 46 to 51. As I said before, stay safe, stay well.